All right, everybody, welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson. Um, in case you're tuning in for the first time ever, uh, shame on you. But uh, hopefully you'll stick around. The show covers all things innovation, ideas, creativity, always with a little skew towards business, and we try to have a little fun while we're doing it. Um, and today, this guy, you're, you're just a nice guy. I am? Yeah, you're like, uh, like genuinely nice, which is it's rare. Um, but hello, Moron Surf. How are you? Thank you. Very good. Uh, I like when you say your name. Can you tell people who you are? So I say Moan Surf, and people ask me if it's Moan or Molan, or and I hear the same for every word they say. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you have a very distinct uh, accent and cadence. It's very much, uh, it's kind of like Eckhart Tolle. Like you just, you, once you tune in and you get it, you're like, okay, now I can, I can roll with this dude. Yeah, your job is to tell me when I speak too fast. I always speak too fast. Yes. When I teach my classes. I tell my students to raise their hands. And so your job is to tell me this is way too fast for radio and I'm going to slow down. Hey, man, with technology today, people can just hit a slow motion button and then. <laughs> um, so before we get too far gone in ridiculousness, uh, give us a 60 second version of who Moran Surf is. So I guess in the context of. Uh, the sitting. I'm a professor of neuroscience and business, and I use the knowledge I acquired in the last decade in how the brain works to try to help businesses and range of people who are interested in how decisions are being made make better choices. How does the brain work? <laughs> no, that's it. Press power. <laughs> yeah, just like a little switch. If she all get like switches implanted in our heads, that would be that would be actually really cool. Um, so uh, you know, in the past ten years, what I have, what have been some things you've uncovered as as far as like, I guess, especially when it comes to business, it's always the power of persuasion, right? We're always businesses are trying to get customers to do X, take some sort of action. Um, are there any sort of like key pillars that you've identified as like? All right, here's where persuasion and neuroscience collide in, in, in business. So, so we look at different uh, range of things, but we look at things like how people decide and not just how a decision is being made in the brain, but also how far before you made a choice can we know your choice? As in, can I go an hour before, seconds before, minutes before when you're born and know what you're going to do when you're at the aisle and there's Colgate on the left and Crest on the right? How right. is it going to happen? So that's one domain that we're looking into. We're looking at, uh, uh, in the context of marketing, we call it consumer neuroscience or neuromarketing. We try to understand how uh, messages affect your brain and uh, it has different applications. How does the price affect your brain? Uh, why is 199 different than two brain-wise? Like why is the brain reading it differently? Yes. Uh, we look at uh, the effects of uh, temperature, uh, the height of your chair, the color of the wall and everything about your brain. And so how accordingly messages get delivered differently. We look at, so this is all in the context of marketing. In the context of finance, we look at risk. So you're about to make a choice to buy something. How does your brain process risk? Right. Uh, that's another domain. In the context of, I guess, decision-making as a whole, we try to see if there's uh, things that uh, uh, make you decide better. So for every person, there's a profile of their brain, and now we can see that you, Chris, make better choices in the morning, and I make better ones in the evening. And some person makes better choices when they're hungry, and one when they're full, and one when they're uh, talking to other people, and one when they're just by themselves. So we kind of try to understand the effects of those things on your specific brain and find ways to make your choices better. Now, that sound, uh, the fact that you use the word specific, right, is, it means that 
you know, how individualized is this or are these types of services? Because like you said, the lighting, the temperature and like we all respond to it different neurologically, physiologically. But then you go like, are there profiles that you can start to identify of like almost like a horoscope of neurology? So it seems that so there's a, there's a saying that my grandfather used always when we were kids. And he said, you're very unique, just like everyone else. And in that sense, I think that we start to see that there's a lot of similarities between brains. It, they cluster. So there's a, this type of brain and that type of brain. And we can kind of quickly figure out which cluster do you fall into and help you make better choices. But in a way, there are things that affect everyone in a similar way. Right. There's things that, that would be different for you. So you might be a person who uh, everyone does different things when they're tired. Yeah. So we know that. But now there's differences in how you respond to being tired. So some people are able to at least identify that they're not making good choices and do different. Well, what's an example? Like, I mean, as you know, if, if I were tired, which I am very tired right now, um, if I'm tired versus I'm like awake and alert. Because I know in sometimes in the creative realm, they talk about like they're, the delirium of being tired is actually feeds the creative process. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like being alert and fresh is also, you know, a, a good thing. Is there a balance between those two? So you or? kind of said it right perfectly. You said that basically for every task, there is a different brain state that's better. So I'll give an example. Uh, there's a study that was done by colleagues of mine uh, where they took judges. And those are judges that uh, have to make a simple choice for all judges. So they just have to get a case and read the case and they don't even see anyone in front of them. They have to make a deci decision whether the guy gets parole or not. Right. So they see... Was this a black person or, or, or no? Uh, I think that's <laughs> if he was black, we'd be like, yes, no, no, no parole. <laughs> so, so they get cases like that all, all, all day right. long, and uh, I think they don't even see the person. So I don't, even, I don't think that other than I'm the name, joking, yeah. they can't even know. Yeah, the name, yeah, because the name will give it away to yeah. you. In some cases, and I think I'm trying to think if there's, a, if it was actually. If they looked at things like uh, gender and race and anything, I think that they tried to do it as clean as possible. Right, just regardless. the facts. So what happens is that if you look at the kind of the function of how many people get parole over the day. Uh, it's better to be the person who gets seen at 8 a.m. when they start a day than to be the one at 9 a.m., then 11 a.m. Basically, what they see is that in the morning, 8 a.m., people get a lot more kind of paroles. And as it gets closer to noon, your chances are below 20% to get to get parole. And then the judge goes, takes a break and has lunch. And then at 1.30, they come back. And again, your best time to kind of be seen by the judge is 1.30 or 8 a.m. because the, the kind of the graph again goes from 8.30 most likely, less likely at 2, less likely at 2.30 and so on. So what happens? Well, like, what, what, like what's, why is that arc? Why is that the, like, why is this, the, the, there's this decline? Is it like the, fatigue? Is it like the input? Like, well, I don't know. What's the... So the suggestion there is, so first of all, they just show the fact, but now they try to suggest that maybe it has to do with fatigue. It has to do with being tired, with hungry, with the, the brain of the person changes and they actually uh, focus on different things in the same case. They just see them. I think what they do right now, by the way, is they have every case be seen by two judges and they randomize the order because it used to be the case that you get seen at 8 a.m. and your name is also starting with A. So, you know, it was alphabetically and you just had more people. Right. So now they kind of try to randomize all of those things. But in a way, we, we, so we know that and we know that the brain actually has a mechanism in the front of the brain that's supposed to regulate uh, uh, thoughts that are coming from within, let's say, let's simplify it, and they're kind of more regulated by your, how hungry you are, how the temperature in the room changes, and we know that your brain is supposed to be, be good in controlling them, but we're not as good. So over the day, we get tired, uh, brain-wise. Is there something that you can do, like, in the, let's stick with the, the judge's example, right? As opposed to changing the, you know, randomizing and not being like alphabetical order, mm -hmm. is there something you can go and talk to the judges or the people who are doing the tasks and say, hey, just like, and, and just make them alert that by 11 o'clock, you're going to be 
a jerk. <laughs> right? so they try, and that, that's actually you, you hit right away the point that neuroscience adds to business where there's a difficulty because people won't tell you that they have these biases. If you ask a person, why did you choose this thing or why are you making this choice? Everyone's going to claim that they're making a the choice totally rationally and like very clean way. And we know they're not. So it's very hard to convince a person that their choice wasn't made in a way that they understand. Right. And we have a lot of evidence now that we can, you know, try to convince people and, and it's true for all of us. So, so even I, who spent my entire kind of decade trying to understand that, am falling for all those biases because it's just too hard to control for all of the little parameters from the temperature in the room to what things ended up uh, being held in my hand when I made the choice. There's a, I'll give you an example. <laughs> Just to kind of uh, give you uh, an idea of how difficult life is. Uh, for Thank you. For this people, uh, is exactly what I need today. Tell you why there's hope. So I'll, I'll, I'll start by like uh, breaking everything and then making you feel like why there's hope. So here's an example of a, uh, uh, there's a study. So I'm, I'm talking science first, but then we're gonna sure no go go for it. Take it into the business world. So here's uh, the uh, science version of that. So they bring you to the lab and they say, uh, "Come, get a here's a cup of tea that they give you and they have you sit down and they ask you to write." Like for 10 minutes, write something about your relationship with your mom. What do you think about your mother? Turns out that what you write about your mom is mostly con like governed by the temperature of the tea that they gave you when you entered the room. So if they give people hot tea, they write warmer and nicer things about their mom rather than if they give them a cup of iced tea. Now, no one would ever tell you, you know, I wrote like nasty things about my mom, unless they're Jewish, uh, <laughs> uh, because of like the temperature of the tea that you gave me. But people end up, like, they, they break into two groups and they see that it affects the choice. Like people actually write different things. The weight of the paper they give them, if it's like a thick paper or thin one, affects the heaviness of their thoughts. Uh, the temperature in the room, the height of the chair, what words someone uses when they right. uh, the task, how, uh, how many steps they're asked. All of those things affect us, very minute effects, but no one believes that their choices are governed by that. Everyone would say, I made that choice totally by myself. You think that you're kind of in control. And the reality is that a lot of things happen to your brain. And the more we know them, we can at least, you know, be aware of the problem and maybe then try to either fix that or at least exploit it or, or right. something like that. This actually it makes me think about the movie Minority Report. Right. And like the science of I know you're going to commit a crime, you know, two weeks from now. <laughs> and and, and maybe the visualization of it, it may be a little bit false. But the idea of the stuff that you're talking about, I mean, can it go that far in that uh, exact or can a person or a group of persons be manipulated in such like micro increments that <laughs> next thing you know they're murderous or you know or they buy the hamburger that you've been wanting, wanting them to buy so the the, the field of neuroscience two very law. different examples by the way murder and hamburgers <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's funny I, I used to do examples of a uh, pornography and organic food we're on the same page good all right uh, so, so I think that the, the field of neuroscience in law is an interesting one that gets a lot of attention right now because we understand more and more that uh, some elements of your choices aren't under your control and also that maybe there's they govern something about the choice you made in a way that you couldn't change. So right now there's a movement that uh, a lot of scientists are trying to go to to basically say let's scan the brain of people who were convicted in crime and see in a way if the uh, punishment should be about just putting them in prison because they behave badly or maybe sending them to a different place that can help them. I'll give you, if you want, examples of that. So there's a classical story that I really like to uh, ponder on of this guy called Charles, Charles Whitman. Mm -hmm. He became famous in grave circumstances in the 60s when he took a cab from his apartment in Austin, Texas, 
road to the University of Austin, climbed the tallest building there, and started spraying people from the tower and killing a number of people and then waiting for the emergency people to show up and kill them. And he was doing bad things for about an hour until the police uh, killed him. And when they tried to investigate what led him to behave like that, they looked at his background and he had no sign of, of anything bad about him. Like, he was a great guy. He was discharged from the Marines a year before. Everything was okay about right. this guy until they went to his apartment and they found his diary. And in his diary, he writes that he feels his brain is not the same. He is changing. He, I think, goes to a psychiatrist before to see if he's okay and gets sent home. And, and he reports, he said, I'm not okay, but he doesn't get help. And even the night before this killing, he writes in his diary, I think I'm going to do something bad tomorrow. I don't know what it is, but I'm worried. And I'm asking that if I end up dead, someone's going to conduct an autopsy on my brain and see what's wrong with it. And even if the check for $30,000 for this autopsy. So when they wow. do the autopsy, they see that there's a massive tumor pressing on the part of the brain called the amygdala that has to do with fear and aggression and may have led to this behavior. And now the question is, what do you do if, 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 if you're a person like that? So now we, we say that, that legally, we say that if you know that there's a problem, you should do something like he had a choice and, right and and therefore like he is doing something bad but at the same time the question is like who is in control there and now I'm, i went too far from like uh, the world of innovation and business but in business we can now say okay let's let's see which part of you controls your choices right and activate that part when we need to we know that you uh, make different choices when you're uh, under pressure uh, so all of the, the uh, marketing for impulse buying, like, you know, the chewing gum that you buy or the yep. people magazine that you buy when you're about to exit the cashier. Now we know kind of how your brain operates in those moments. And maybe we can change the color of the cover of the magazine to make it more appealing to a brain state like that. That's interesting because it's funny. I'm, the whole time you're talking about this stuff, I'm, I have a like a an unopened cold water and a cup like a with Mountain Dew in it. Let's talk about how did you choose? Okay, so you, you I don't know how to like I it was just like for me I don't it, I don't, I don't like I'm I'm trying to understand why I chose the Mountain Dew when intrinsically I know it's not the best choice for me, right? Um, I just came from the dentist. You're like, oh, we got some work to do on you, <laughs> but at the same time, like. Eh, I'm gonna have Mountain Dew. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's like some sort of like, oh, I deserve like a little bit of a reward or a treat or something, or or am I just like naturally inclined toward the the garbage? So here's the pornography and the organic food. Uh, yeah, they come. Mm, yeah, so, right. Let's start with pornography. <laughs> so 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 we start with pornography. So we know that people sometimes when you ask them questions aren't gonna they're not gonna tell you the right answer for two reasons: either because they don't know, or because they don't want to tell you. So this is where the two examples come. So I think that uh, I think it was Los Angeles when there was a supermarket who was about to open a little branch in a specific neighborhood where there were already a lot of supermarkets there, and they said we're gonna survey everyone in this zip code and ask them will they buy an even healthier food in this supermarket that's a little more expensive. And in the survey, there's like 100% uh, uh, of the people saying, of course, we're going to buy the healthiest food because it's Los Angeles. And, you know, whoever right. lives in the 90036 says <laughs> they're going to buy the best food out there. That's exactly where I live, by the way. Yeah. I don't know. That's kind of scary that you even said that. that was, uh, why did you make that choice? I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> total guess. <laughs> it's like totally uh, weird. That is actually <laughs> exactly where I live. So maybe you were in the survey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. May, uh, yeah. Did you do, was this your survey? You like, nope. you notice my handwriting? <laughs> All right, go ahead. All right. So they had the survey. They opened the supermarket. Everyone said they're going to buy. And the supermarket closes after one year because no one buys. Because at the end of the day, when you go to buy a milk and you say, this one is even better, but it's like $10 more and I need just milk for cornflakes. It's going to be $2. I don't care. You end up buying the one you want. And that's when people uh, lie not to uh, us. They lie to themselves. So many people we know buy clothes for the skinnier version of themselves. 
there's a spike in people uh, buying gym memberships towards Christmas or right. just before the beginning of the year. Uh, birthdays are a good time to sell things that you would commit to for one year but not going to use. So all of those things suggest that people really are lying to themselves. So yeah. If we ask them, we're going to get the answer of the side of the brain that uh, doesn't know really who you are. And it lives in your brain. I mean, we, we don't have to go that far. We can think about ourselves going to sleep pretty much every night mm-hmm. and setting the alarm to 6 a.m. And then when you wake up in the morning, you're a different person. Suddenly yeah. it doesn't look like you should be up at 6 a.m. And suddenly and things aren't as uh, uh, plausible as they used to be like last night. And you have a button called snooze that's just made for this other part of you to stay a little bit in bed longer. Right. So, so this is all a side of our brain that we can tap into right now. We can actually look inside. And I'll tell you if, if you want in a second how we do that. But see how reliable you are when you make a choice about the future. And we see that you're not that reliable and we can see why you're not. And that's the uh, health food, organic food kind of example that suggests that people uh, are lying to themselves, not to us. So if you ask them in a focus group, they're going to actually tell you something that if you try to use what they say, you're going to be mistaken because they lied not just to uh, you, but also to themselves. Pornography is an example where I actually was uh, running a study where we tried to see something about people's choices when it comes to pornography. And we had a survey about 1,000 people and we asked them questions about their viewing patterns. And out of 100 people, only one person even watches pornography according to the survey. So 99 people said that they never watched pornography. Now, if you look at the bandwidth of the internet, it's like 80% of the internet is pornography. So right. there's just one guy who runs around and watches all the pornography <laughs> in the world for everyone. Or people yep. probably just didn't tell us the truth because they were embarrassed or they didn't want to They didn't want to disclose things in the yeah. survey. So whatever it is, people aren't uh, likely to tell you the truth if they feel that it's somehow uh, judged. It's, it's, it's also, I mean, I think, yes, the judging part of it is, but I think... We intrinsically want to be better people, and the things that we perceive as bad, we you know we want we we genuinely want to move away from. So like I do, like the water is here because I want to drink the water, right? But you know, at some point, like you give in to well, let's I, I'll, for the sake of conversation, I'll say the lower self in that instance, or you know, like I do want to eat healthy. Sure, I will buy the you know the three dollar you know bread versus the dollar bread, and then when it comes down to it, like I think the other self is is. Not so much lying, but m- maybe more so like an aspirational version of yourself. I, I, so I agree. So, so uh, lying, calling it lying is a, is a bit like extreme. And, and we know that people, w- when given the choice and when they are explained everything and when they're, when they're calmer and everything is easier, they actually usually are better for themselves than they are under pressure. So now knowing that is useful. So we actually, if we want to exploit them, we might want to induce pressure to make right. them do bad things. If we want to help them, we want to create a, a situations where they have they have a little more of their brain to control the choice and make a better decision. And th- this term is called cognitive load. And we actually know now... Cognitive load? Yeah. Okay. And we know now more and more about uh, how... It has nothing to do with the porn part of it. No. Then. Okay. Right. <laughs> but, but, so, so here's, so, but it has to do a lot with like choices. And I'll give you uh, uh, two examples, one about poverty and one about uh, dieting. And tell me when you want to stop talking about like science. Like a, no, a, I, don't worry. I will. Well, this is great. I'm okay. having a blast. So here's the here, here's the dieting part, and here's the um, the po- poverty part. So dieting. There's a study by a guy at Stanford, and he. Uh, I, I'm probably going to butcher a little bit of the details, but the, the kind of essence is that he brings people to the lab and he says you're going to get advice from a nutritionist on how to eat healthy. And most of the people that he invited, people who claim that they want a diet or they have a reason to to see the nutritionist. So they come to the lab and then uh, they get sent to a room and in this room they're given a number that will be their ID and they have to go back to the lobby and then someone's going to call them in 10 minutes they have to give them the number and then uh, they're going to get this advice. So that's the experiment. The experiment itself actually is broken in the following way. 
half the people get a very simple number to remember, like one, two, three. And half the people get a 10 digit long confusing number, one, two, seven, four, two, two, six, six, one, five, zero. And both of them have to sit in the lobby and just wait to be called for 10 minutes. Now the experiment starts now because in the lobby, there's a delicious tasty cake. And what they measured is how many people took uh, nibbles of the cake while they were waiting for 10 minutes. And what they saw is that the people that had only short digits to remember, short number, didn't take it all from the cake. And mm-hmm. the people who had a lot of numbers to remember took a lot of like bites. And it's because their brain was occupied with trying to remember these long digits. They, have, they didn't have enough cognitive load. They didn't have enough mm. mental capacity right. to also suppress the desire to eat the cake. So both people want to eat the cake, but one of them has enough brain to not eat the cake. The other one just doesn't have it because he's focusing on remembering the number and then he's eating more of the cake. And then they all came to get advice on dieting, but they fail already in the lobby right. while waiting. So this was just one evidence of the fact that loading your brain with things actually changes your behavior. And now if you talk about poverty, that's a topic that a friend of mine really cares about a lot, and he's a professor at Princeton who spends a lot of time looking at it, but he goes, because he says that poverty is a sense of cognitive load. So if you're poor, you're all the time worried about things and you constantly make commitments like about the future and you make decisions. And you know, if you go to a cab right now, you probably don't know what the meter starts on. You can mm-hmm. have known it's about $2, $3, but you have no idea. But a You don't know how the, like, the, when the, the rate changes so fast. You're like, well, hey, wait, just stop. I'll get out here. This is fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> so you, you, kind of, you kind of live in a world, and, and you go, when you go walk around in Los Angeles and you go to a supermarket to buy food, you kind of know that things should be around 4 to $5 each, and you buy a, you know, for a family for a week, you spend maybe $200, but you don't really know how much each item costs. But if you're poor, you know exactly how much each item costs. You know exactly what the meter starts on on every cab. You make a decision all the time whether you're going to walk home with your bags or you're going to take a cab so all of those choices are, are little choices but they actually overload your brain such that at the end of the day you're making bad choices financially that affect your life and it's not that you're stumped that, 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 that you're not smart you're actually right. very smart it's just that any person who would be under that pressure would make the same mistake so so you, that, I mean that, that kind of goes into like you know a little bit more on the, the sociological side where people like we kind of fetishize being busy right oh I'm so busy oh I'm so busy and then you know, it, I would imagine, kind of based on what you just said, that the fact that I am so busy is because I'm making. Everybody wants an easier life, right? So, but because I'm busy, I'm not f- focused on how to make things easier. Like, what should I be eliminating? What should I be focused more on? What, you know, that because I ask everybody on the show about their filtering process because everybody's a multi hyphenate. They have multiple projects, things that are going on, th- you know, career shifts, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, but I don't think I think. From what you just said, it's like uh, the busy syndrome can even be cognitive overload. Oh, look at me. I'm sounding all like I'm, <laughs> I should teach your class. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, like, is am I right in that? Is that, you know, is that something that you could look at and say? Definitely. So being busy is a state and it's also an act of, of, of amount of chores. So for the same uh, day, some person might be overloaded by the things they have to do and they're going to start failing a lot of those things and some person would not and I think that it's, that some of it is just the brain so so for the same set of activities some person is kind of troubled by them and it makes it hard some people are not and we can now know that so we can actually know and, and we have a lot of studies right now that are done by us where we basically take people and push them to the limit when it's when it comes to being busy when it comes to uh, uh, being having activities that are physical we just push them to the limit and we intentionally make them break Right, like whatever break is for you, and so it could be that you're uh, starting to. I want to make sure my wife listens to this podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so whatever it is that, that, that your wife thinks is damn it, woman, <laughs> gonna break you. We try to get you there, right? And we try to look at your brain just before you break, like the second before, and see in a way if we could have predicted what would make you break and how you are handling those states. So we, I right. give an example of like an easy case, and then we can talk about like being busy. So we take athletes that are extreme athletes, so they're very used to. Uh, being pushed to the limits, and we bring them to the lab and we say, we're going to put you on the stationary bike, let's say, and we're going to ask you to cycle for a while, and uh, we're going to make it harder and harder over time. We just ask you one thing, please uh, don't ever stop. Right. Says, Sorry, what? I said, just don't don't stop until I tell you to. Forever, as long as I'm not telling you, you've got to continue. And the guy says, sure, okay. And they start uh, cycling, and we make it harder and harder and harder, and at some point they're sweating, and they're saying, where am I going to stop? It's too hard. And we say, just continue until I tell you to. And actually, we're not planning to stop them ever, and we want them to break. So at some point, they're going to say, enough. I can't do it anymore. Right. It's too much. And then we say, fantastic, get off the bike. Let's look at your brain. And we see how their brain looks just in the minute leading to them breaking. And that's a moment where your uh, part of the brain that is in pain says, I'm in pain. And there's another part that says, continue. Right. And at some point, the pain wins. And tomorrow, we can bring you over again and say, let's do the same thing we did yesterday. But this time, when you get to the moment where you're about to break, we're going to give you acoustic feedback, telling you that we know that you're in this state. And now let's try to train your brain to overcome this moment and maybe stay longer or recognize this moment. And now you can think of a CEO of a company, an athlete, you and your wife, anyone can right. basically say, I, I, I want everyone to know when I'm at this state or I want to know myself at this state and then act accordingly. And then I know that maybe... This is a moment I should make decisions. This is a moment I shouldn't buy uh, stocks in Enron. This is a moment that I shouldn't buy this... Uh, uh, um, Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> this is a moment that, so that's, that's a moment you want to know about yourself. Shout out to Mountain Dew, by the way. <laughs> it's a great product if you guys want to sponsor the show. <laughs> and it worked on you. They, 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 <laughs> they got me, yeah. right? Uh, no, it, it, and I think it sounds like also over time, or if you're aware of your breaking points, you can also increase capacity, right? right? So especially in the case of an athlete or a busy person, I use the quotation marks, but uh, you learn what that limit is. And then that's kind of like, but that, that could be anything, physical, mental, emotional, like being able to expand yeah. your, your capacity. We, we more and more, we know more things about how those things link to your brain and what, what affects your capacity, if you want, your load. And... For each person, it seems to be a little bit different. So right. some people are just born better. So there's some people just born, you know, there's this famous uh, marshmallow test. You know, you probably know the, the movie. Uh, yeah, somebody else just told me the marshmallow test like a I few days ago. It was like a, it's a, it's a classical, if it's it's fun to see. Oh, right, the kid, the yeah. kid, yeah. But go ahead and tell the audience because I will tear the, it up. I will mess it all up. I would do the same probably because <laughs> I only know the movie. I've never seen the actual paper, so so I, I know that the, the the what you know from like reading uh, you know Wikipedia. Right. But what what the story is that they bring kids. It was in the eighties. They bring kids and they tell them uh, kids age four. Tell them here's a, a piece of marshmallow. You can eat it now and leave, or you can wait a few minutes until I come back and if you waited and you didn't eat that I'm going to give you two marshmallows and then they just see how they work with that particular state of desire and how they what strategies they use to not eat the marshmallow and you know in the end they either get the second one or not Right. but this was done in the 80s and now those kids are in their 40s so now we can actually try to link the kids who were really good in controlling themselves as four-year-olds to where they are in the world right now. And we seem to see that, and that's where I'm kind of going to butcher the results because I yeah. know the Wikipedia, but we know that they uh, are better decision makers. They're healthier. They make for better partners, uh, like husbands or wives. They make uh, uh, for good uh, investors. They make really good s'mores. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones do or don't. Um, so speaking of choices, right, you you mentioned earlier this has been 10 years of your life so far. Um, and, and prior to that was a very different life. Um, so talk about a little bit what you were doing before and why you made the choice to switch to what you're doing now. So um, I always struggle in finding ways to t- say it in a way that doesn't uh, upset the audience. I used to be a hacker. Uh, no, which is to say that uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the, the term that we, that is now used is a uh, uh, penetration testing. Sounds kinky, but it means uh, back to the pornography. Again, <laughs> you, you, the point is that you, you, you hire by banks or by uh, the FBI or by big organizations that uh, try to be secure, and they ask you and your team. This was us in the uh, late '90s and early 2000s. We get asked by say the bank to try to break into the bank. Uh, and find flaws in their security and then teach them how we could get in so they can secure themselves better and stop the bad guys from coming in. So this was our, my job for nearly a decade. Uh, I, I was trained, so I, I kind of grew up with computers right. and uh, learned how to play with them, You know how to increase the life. And you grew value. up in Israel, correct? Yeah, I, okay. I, I was born in France and raised in Israel. And I think that roughly when I was six years old, computer became uh, affordable to a person in a household, right. and most people use them to, you know, uh, put recipes and uh, write some text <laughs> in the, uh, word processors. And I had a few computer games that were copyrighted, so I tried to kind of see if we can find a way to copy them without uh, kind of overcoming the over copyright. And there, there was the early days of internet, which was a BBS, Bulletin Board Services, where I could communicate with other hackers across the world and learn some techniques to break codes what, what drew you to that world right like you know i find that most hackers start super young um i, I mean i could be like nobody's like 40 and like oh you know what i'm gonna do tomorrow <laughs> i'm gonna be a hacker uh like most and we've had a few on the show and they've all started at like 13 11 you know or younger or you know somewhere around that age what was it that drew you to computers in that way so i think we benefit from the fact that computers were uh, kind of grew up with us so you know, pcxt came to life when I came to life, kind of. So so it was it was easier. So if someone tries to get into the world of hacking right now, there's a lot they have to know about how hard drives work and how the internet works and just to, to catch up to. And so when we grew up, and right. there's only one way to turn a computer on and there's only one computer system, that operating system that you can work with. So it was kind of easier to, as they got more complex, we knew all the steps. So it was that. But I think for me, computer games. I uh, got Mario 1, or what's called, I think, Montezuma's Revenge mm-hmm. in the, the 80s, and uh, I kept failing. And I said, uh, I bet there's a way to increase my score or uh, get one more life to do that. And then you learn that it's not too hard to play with the insides, the guts of the program, and get better. And then you see that it actually is the same technique that right. can be used to increase your life in different game. King's Quest was the game I played when I was uh, a kid. Well, like I mean, like you know, I probably didn't game as hard as you did, right? And uh, like I, you know, I, I played my Atari, and then as PlayStation came or Sega, like I would look for cheat codes for certain things. But I never like it, for me, it didn't gravitate toward a career in hacking and breaking into banks, right? So uh, you know, was there sort of a psychological draw for you? Like we had um. Uh, oh, what's the guy's name? Matt. No, there was another guy on the show. Not, yeah, I'm botching his name, but he is a like a genius. The show Scorpion is based on his life. Okay. Walter O'Brien, and uh, he felt like 
I mean, a little bit more depth, but it was like, oh, computers talk or think like I think, you know. Um, was there something that, you know, that kept, like swimming was my thing, right? So I loved swimming. Um, but uh, you, you, the fact that you had this deep passion that it became a career for a, a, a great period of your life. I'm trying to think. So so I think I, I always liked puzzles. And I I share what you just said about the fact that I uh, think in a way, in a very uh, serial kind of way about puzzles. And I'm trying to think. This is like a good question. There's like a, there's a saying among scientists, it's not research, it's me-search. Right. I feel like I have to uh, <laughs> give you a good answer to why I... We can come back to it. I just, like, I, it was just, it was, it was curious, especially given the fact that, you know, 10 years ago, you kind of switched gears. I mean, I think instead of tinkering with, you know, electronic machines, you're, it's a biological machine, right? Um, but so you were doing the hacking for banks and things, and then we want to get into like a little bit of the, the choice you made to try. Uh, so, so uh, so ultimately, what, what? So I was a kid who cared about that, but I think where the, where, the, where it actually became a serious thing that uh, that became a profession was uh, I was in Israel, so I was uh, recruited to the Israeli army, and I was in intelligence. In intelligence, you just are surrounded by people that all share this knowledge on how computers work and how to hack them. And suddenly, there's also a cause. Someone tells you you've got to do that for this reason, and suddenly your job is to try to hack computers for the country. And there's like. Uh, uh, more, you know, there's more funding for for, for things. Suddenly, it becomes uh, a bigger picture thing. So I did that for over three years as a soldier, and I think this is not only where I learned a lot of other skills that I didn't have as a kid. I also found a lot of people that were kind of like me. And it's common for me in Israel that you finish the army and you basically get a profession in the army. It's mm. kind of it's formative years, age 18 to 21. It's when people in the US go to college, so you kind of. All of your life happens uh, in those three or four years in the army. So when you finish the army, usually you have a profession and you can go to college if you want to get another first degree, but you can also go and start working in your profession. And a lot of my friends just finished the army and went and started companies in the domain of security. Got it. So I was one. Of, so I, I feel this was also important. And also it turns out that it was a good financial choice because uh, now we're talking 1998 and 1999, the internet starts getting into houses and I start seeing banks and I tell right away that there was a problem with their security. So it, it, was, it was much easier right. to, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think of like the, the simple example we can give you of like how hacking was, but the example that, I, that comes to mind is um, Amazon circa 2000. Uh, they have a website that allows you to uh, buy products, but every product you select and you buy gets saved in a cookie on your computer. So basically, you have a little file that says you just bought a CD for $5. And another uh, in the another line in the same product that says you bought a book for $10. But this is saved on your end. So you can just go into this file and change the numbers from $5 to negative $5. Right. And then when you go to the checkout page, it just tallies all the numbers you came up with. And suddenly, the negative $5 uh, kind of balances the plus $5. And you right. get to buy 10 items for $0. And you actually give your credit card and you swipe it online, so to speak. And you pay zero dollars and you get all those items because no one checked the client side version of hacking. So this is like very simple. So everyone can could have done it fifteen years ago. It wasn't hard. Damn but it! So you just have to know this thing. That. You can actually whole... you know change it to negative twenty dollars and have Amazon pay you right. when you buy. So this was this is this this is called a, they now have a, tam- a name for that. It's called a cookie tampering. That's a name for the attack. It's trivial. Any hacker knows that, but go back 15 years ago, no bank knew about it, no uh, security company knew about it, so there, here's a way to do that. And this is equivalent to, I think, go back 
40 years, Steve Jobs uh, and Wozniak, they, they, they learned the same thing about how to hack into phones, and they used that. So I think that they, there's something to hackers uh, that aligns well with the innovation right. and allows and, and kind of works well with uh, breaking rules and I think that, well, that's, that, that we were talking about this yesterday but like you know the whole Matt Mason idea of his book and mm-hmm. like the pirate's dilemma is that they are breaking a lot of rules that actually become things that are you know better for us in the long run it's that transitional period where it's not cool that people are like oh like I remember when camera phones started like becoming a little bit more publicly used and I would get real like I would get kind of pissed off if you're like at a bar or you're at you're somewhere and people are taking pictures and they're not being mindful of the fact that you know I'm standing there and they're taking a picture of their friend and then now suddenly you see people taking pictures like you keep ordering your drink or you used to kind of shy away from like let them take their picture and then I'll continue what I'm doing so there's these transitional phases that happen in between time where there's discomfort right um I think uh, I saw that uh, in you know in uh, you know the Google Maps has this feature where you can on top of like asking how to get from A to B you can ask say how to get from A to B and only make right turns so if you wanna you know like make right turns in 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 lights that are red or something right. like that so you can ask for a map that also has another kind of level to it so you can also uh, ask to get from A to B and not be seen by cameras. So you can say, gave me a, a way to drive from A to B without being seen by camera. And I tried it a few weeks ago in New York. And if you try to get from Greenwich Village in New York to the Upper East Side, the answer is go to the uh, Hudson River, swim up to... Uh, <laughs> there's just no way to, be, right. to to go between those two sections without being seen by cameras. There's just too many cameras in like in you know in like little phone booth and uh, right. street lights, and you just cannot. So this so this is a world we accept now that we're just being filmed every time it's a crime you, a week after you can see a kind of a street camera that shows exactly what happened yeah so in a way this is the kind of world we accept well, there's, a, there's a lot of dialogue with that in london right now right uh, about like too many cameras and uh, even to the point where it's like it's such a cost to the city that they're like reconsidering to just the the, the amount of resources it takes to operate them and monitor them versus the ROI of catching criminals or you know whatever they're doing but there was that one funny viral video the one guy that was super drunk and they just followed him like all the way <laughs> it was so funny um so you so at some point you go brains so uh, <laughs> so it's going to be hard for me to to uh, explain I'm, I'm i'm being asked often what was what was the moment that made me decide to change but i think that it's a combination of a uh, a moment of kind of enlightenment right. a meeting with a very impressive person uh, being fed up with doing what i did and usually and also a failure at work so I, I guess somewhere between those two but i guess the two highlight moments is uh, one a uh, we got, I think we got bored of doing the same thing, so we tried to kind of expand the business of trying to break into banks, not just virtually, to also trying to actively go to banks and try to break in, right. and we were not good at that. So there were a, a number of failures of us trying to physically go and rob a bank and being stopped in various states of the way that said, I guess this suggests that I'm just bored of what I'm doing and maybe I should think of career change. This is one reason. So you, you kind of, you were, you had your own sort of fatigue around it, you know, yeah. kind of couple like, all right, like yeah, I get, you know, like we're just going to go break into another one <laughs> and, and, and it may or may not work and I kind of don't care. Exactly. And yeah. I think that, uh, so it, it got to the point where I think we, at the time we had pretty much every bank that is big was our client 
and we every six months broke into their systems, wrote a report on what they should do, and then they used the report to say, now that we know that but you found this flaw, we're going to fix this flaw, but there's not going to be any problem. And we used to come back again six months later and do the same process and find a different flaw. So it was almost seeing the same clients also. Right. So so it was in, in trying the same thing. So there was, I think, a boredom. But I also, I think... Uh, cared a little bit about the brain as it was a fascinating question to me forever before I knew what what ways I can actually tackle that. And I guess the I had a meeting uh, with Francis Crick. He's, uh, he was in San Diego and I happened to meet him and he's the one of the two people who uh, explained the double helix and won the Nobel Prize in the 50s for you know explaining how DNA works. He right. was on Crick. And uh, according to him, once you get the Nobel Prize for something serious, you get to ask questions about things that are impossible to ask. So you can first like get Nobel Prize in physics and then study aliens. Uh, so mm. he got Nobel Prize in biology explaining how the double helix work. And then he spent the next 30 years trying to, 40 years even, trying to understand how consciousness works. And you only allowed to do that after you win the Nobel Prize in something real. So when I met him, uh, I talked to him a little bit about my career. It was very random, and uh, but interesting. And he said something like, "You know, I didn't. He didn't know that there's actually a career called hacker. This was like right. something that he was surprised. But he himself was a hacker, so to speak, during World War II." So, you know, he was uh, similar to Alan Turing and all of those guys mm-hmm. who basically were hackers. And then when the war was over, they translate their knowledge to explaining how computers should work and uh, solving puzzles in physics and explaining how DNA works. So so they all channeled their knowledge in statistics and computer algorithms right. to something that changed the world. He said, okay, if you know how to hack computers, you should forget about this stupid business of yours and <laughs> go do something meaningful in your life, which is uh, look at the brain, which to him was a similar... Sure. It's a black box that you can uh, fit input in and see what comes out and understand what goes on inside. So this is what he said. By the way, there's absolutely no uh, uh, similarity between my career and his career, but he saw enough similarity to suggest that I should do that and it was enough uh, to support me and write a letter of recommendation that says, take this guy and make him a neuroscientist. And when Francis Kick writes a letter of recommendation, you get in. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good letter. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, that's cool. What is what has been the thing that's uh, fascinated you the most about human behavior? So I think that uh, so I, I think humans are fascinating, and I think to me the most interesting thing is that uh, we're understanding more and more now the uh, gap between uh, what you call or the gap between your free will and uh, the actual will. So we think that we decide now. We think that. Um, we're in control, and it seems that it's not the case, and it seems that either we uh, decide seconds before we think we decided, uh, or we might not be in control entirely. And to me, this is uh, uh, this is not just an interesting uh, scientific question, but also a philosophical debate. Like, who is, who is in control? There's this uh, quote that I really like by uh, Isaac Asimov, mm-hmm. the science fiction book author, and he says, uh, the bishop is the most important piece on the chessboard in the eyes of the bishop. And in a way, to me, it suggests that uh, we think the king is the most important one and the queen, and we're probably the bishop in this chessboard that's called our brain, but we still think that this is the most important piece, and we live life kind of thinking that this is what we should be. Right. But we know more and more that the choice of water versus Mountain Dew that you made 20 minutes ago uh, wasn't entirely yours, and you're going to come up with an answer why you made this choice, but we know that you're not... Not reliable. Your memory is not reliable. Your explanation of yourself is not reliable. And then, question is, who's in control? 
I think the Mountain Dew actually was Sean's fault. (laughs) He asked me to go get him a sandwich on the way here, and I was like, oh, well, can I get a Mountain Dew to go with the sandwich? That's the answer. Sean is in control. (laughs) Sean is in control. That's that's the title of this episode. And people are like, what? (laughs) Um, So, uh, but that's interesting. Then what? If, where does the control come? Like, are we just like uh, an accumulation of experiences, and and those kind of like determine what I'm going to do? You know, uh, 45 minutes from now. So we don't know. That's the, that's the the bottom line. We know some things. We know that uh, we know that it's not happening right now, but it happened in the past. As in, sometime before you started speaking, the brain kind of created the grammar and the syntax and the language and chose the topic, and already started creating the the pattern of activity that you're going to be what you said, and but you, if you asked, will say that it happened when you spoke. Right. In many ways, you and I, when we speak right now, we're also listening to ourselves for the first time. You don't really think about the next word and then say it. It's kind of happening. And in a way, you're also an observer of reality. Like you say something and then you say, oh, I guess I believe what I said because it came out of my mouth. But right. you know, it's not really true. Like somewhere there is this you who decides and it's the you who chooses to drink the mountain, the, the, the mountain dew and it's the uh, person who buys Crest or Colgate and it's the person who invests in stock and it's the person who falls in love and all of those people happen to you and you assume that it's you. Right. It's like an interesting moment to understand that and it's also an interesting moment philosophically to accept that we're just another piece in a big chessboard and not the main one. Hmm. Um, wow, that's uh, that. I have a colleague. I, 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 since I, since I'm somehow coming up inspiring, I should say like one inspiring thing that they. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not uninspiring. It, it, but it, it kind of opens up a Pandora's box of, you know, other possibilities and other ways of thinking. Because you know, the the idea of spontaneity almost goes away, right? Like, are we spontaneous? Or like, let's go to the beach. You're like, no. Like you, if according to what you just said, it's kind of like. Not it wasn't as spontaneous as you might have imagined. So, so here's the beauty of that. Now, 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 I'll try to uh, flip that into why why I feel it's beautiful and why why the world is is so exciting now uh, to people in the business world who care about neuroscience and for neuroscientists who try to understand how the brain works. Um, go back 400 years ago, Galileo Galilei points his telescope to the moons of Jupiter and he expects the the moons to orbit in a specific uh, direction and it doesn't work. And he's baffled by that and he tries to align the equations. And finally, the only solution he can come up with is that the Earth is in the center of the universe, but the sun is. And this troubles him because he's religious and it's also a change of everything. But after a while, he just goes with the equations and puts the sun in the center and goes into a world where we're just one more planet out of many orbiting a sun that's out of many. And it kind of changes everything. Right. First, he was very troubled, but once he accepted that, it actually allowed us to now explore the wide reaches of the universe. And suddenly we saw that there's a much bigger thing out there than we imagined because we were dethroned from the center but found out that there's a lot more to see. In the same way, I think that right now neuroscientists are dethroning us from being the king in this uh, chessboard but rather being the bishop, right? which we're very much against. We're not happy with because it's kind of taking who's a spontaneous person, who's making a choice, and, and wh- what's behind that. But once we accept that, I think we're going to explore the most interesting thing in the universe, which is us. We're going right. to see that there's more planets in our head. And now we become a really interesting character. 
It, no, it's great because I I um I went to the Buckminster Fuller Institute earlier this year, mm-hmm. and there's this great like dome presentation, and it's like an anima- an animation of the universe, and it's a voiceover while you're watching it, and somebody's like l- explaining it to you live what you're looking at, and then at the end of it, or not the end of, it, but it, the realization comes that you are like the center of the universe is everywhere. So at any given time, you are the center of the universe or your universe, and so. Like it's, I don't, I'm just getting a little quantum, but like the <laughs> the idea that like we, you know we are and are not in control like at, at any given moment. So uh, and it doesn't. So it, it matters philosophically, but it doesn't really change. Like you're not going to live life in any way differently, knowing that maybe in your brain there's biases. You kind of live life the same way. It's important to to ponder on that every now and then, and I think this is what the show. Is about it's like a chance for every person to say what what does it mean for my life and right. what can I do? But in many ways, life goes on, and it's the beauty of life that that we don't need to know all of those things. Like we don't really need to know how we play tennis and what happens all the mechanics to play tennis. We just play tennis and we walk down the stairs without thinking of every step and of the way. And that's the beauty of our brain. It is a huge machine to take yeah. a lot of patterns and create meaning out of them and that's I think what is beautiful about us well I think you know it's funny because it, like you and I both do some work with brands right like in, and help them figure out the psychology of the consumer and you know what how we can persuade them what colors do we want like how do we want to light the grocery store all these different choices we make um, and like I always wonder where the balance is between overthinking it and underthinking it because it's you know you can oversimplify something and go like oh those people like this let's do that and then the other the over complication of things and i find this on both sides of the equation with clients i work with it's you know it's like i feel like i'm explaining something over and over again they're asking like about all this minutia where you know and even some of what you're t- talking about is minutia in some re- respect um and like you said like it, at some point it doesn't matter in the practical day-to-day living like in the maybe the span of humanity like in where we go from here it does but um you know is there is there a balance when you enter the business world of how much of moran surf you need to know <laughs> or versus like what are, what are the basics i need to keep in mind so so let me tell you why i'm gonna take an even bigger picture and tell you why you're better than me why people should listen to you and not to me when you, when we come in both of us come to a client and try to explain to them how to do things make sure you say this one slowly so I, <laughs> I could use <laughs> the business <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you <laughs> so here's an example and then and, and the, the message would be that they should listen to you more than to me we spent almost six years trying to understand how the eyes look at content and explaining the, the nuances of what draws your attention and what colors and changes. And we actually found a beautiful algorithm. We call it the saliency model. Uh, my, my PhD advisor basically is known for, for refining this, this beautifully. And this says that I can now give you a JPEG and you can predict with this algorithm perfectly where the eyes are going to go. So we were excited about that. We said, here it is. We now can predict what people are going to look at in every content, in a commercial, in a supermarket, in a shelf of a supermarket. Let's go to anyone and offer that as a replacement to any other smart choice they make. So someone I know went with that to New York Times and said, we're going to tell you how to design your page perfectly because we now have this perfect algorithm that predicts what people are going to look at. And if you want people to look at this ad, we're going to tell you what colors to make it and where to put it and everything. And then he came up with that and he showed New York Times how to do that. And they said, you know, it's great that you have this algorithm, but we have Anthony here in the back and he's been doing it for 20 years. And what you spent a lot of time learning and explaining, he just knows intuitively and we rely on him. He takes a lot, a lot less time to do it. He's perfect. And in many ways, people like you who spent 
a lot of time learning this thing. They don't need the science to explain the, 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 the thought. They just have it intuitively. And I think that more and more we learn that the experts are better than any algorithm and also you don't need to explain how the brain works or what's the, we just need to have a person who feel it right do it and and the best marketing people right now and the best uh, uh, traders in finance and the best CEOs they're just tuned to their brand they're tuned to their business and they they enjoy me coming and like studying for months how their brain works how the brand of the audience is and explaining but at the end of the day they don't need me it's all there they already know the answer so this is why you're better That's why you're out of a job now. You just <laughs> everyone listening to the show will never hire. No, just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I think people are in, still intrinsically drawn, you know, to what you do. And I think, you know, whether like if you do a six month study for them, I think it's those top level findings that become the things that become a shift. And maybe not like, hey, here's the exact page design layout. But if it's people like this at this time of year because this is the weather and this yeah. is X Y Z, it's like okay, that's a great insight. We can build. We can build from that. People like science overall. They, right. they, even if they know the answer intuitively, even if there is Anthony in the back, they like a scientist to also explain. And occasionally, and this is where neuromarketing, the field that I'm kind of trying to promote a lot right now, uh, is focusing uh, right now. And it's the, the, the realm we're trying to kind of uh, uh, amplify right now are the moments that are where there's difference between uh, what you intuitively want and what neuroscience would tell you. So most of the time, 99% of the time, uh, what we see is that whatever we study is exactly what you get from a person who just tells you. So we study the brains of people who make decisions and we ask them a question and they say, yeah, I wanted this movie because it's uh, more funny than this movie. So, well, okay, fine. I just spent like a decade studying <laughs> your brain and, and I write right. like a mechanism, but you, but you can also articulate it. And, and the only interesting moments are the moments where the person says, I want A, and we say, no, your brain tells me you want not A, and let's see in six months what you're going to buy, A right. or not A. And every now and then there are some domains where we're better, in, better than the person himself, and that's when it becomes interesting. Uh, I think that, for instance, one realm that I think it's, is benefiting from that a lot right now is politics, uh, because there's elections coming exactly in a year from now, and the undecided are this kind of group that everyone cares about, and we don't know yet. Woo, Ben Carson! Woo! <laughs> right, Rachel? Ben, ben, all right, Ben Carson! <laughs> Uh, so this is like a realm where, where it becomes interesting. Uh, but for most businesses and brands, it's really uh, we're explaining the obvious right right now. But yeah. but I'm still hopeful. So it, we need only need one time that we do better, then, then this field is going to kind of have an emergence. But right now we're still struggling on finding this one thing that we do better than just asking Anthony in the back. Um, as far as your own sort of personal brand story, you know, and like the transition you've been, there's a there's a moment that you're known for, you know, probably most commonly known for. Yeah. Um, and it's the yeah, you gave a talk on the moth um, about one of your bank incidences. I, I, I'll spare you telling the story, but and people please go Google the Moran Surf Moth Grand Slam winner, right? Yes. Um, but because you're an amazing storyteller um, and. You know, how do you do you feel a need to overcome that or, you know, because I feel like I, we were hanging out last night and there were people coming up to you like, oh, you, you're like, you're that guy. Um, but <laughs> you're kind of like no longer that guy. So, you know, from a public perception, does that hinder or hurt or help? So I I, I wish I controlled the moment and I uh, at the time knew that this is a moment that's going to define my life, so to speak. Uh, but you're just the bishop. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, so I think no matter what I do as a scientist, it's been 10 years, 
I'm going to be known as the guy who broke into a bank. Uh, and I'm going to known as a hacker. I try to now leverage that into part of my narrative and tell my story and people ask is how I uh, learned things as a hacker that influenced my uh, career as a scientist and how my career as a hacker uh, tells me something about how brands operate in, in bad states and how bad behavior can be used and all kinds of things that I try to leverage. But it's, it's funny that uh, in the world we live in right now, because uh, uh, communication starts with a search on Google, Right. The thing that pops up is one thing, and I think that my I have to explain myself starting with uh, here is why. So I, I can tell you stories uh, from various domains. I, I once tried to pass TSA uh, with a, an experiment setup that I had that actually looked like a bomb. So it was like it's like a, the experiment itself required like a, a something. It looked like a clock. Right. Uh, wow. Like an old classic bomb. Yeah. It had like a, a steel ball yeah. with a wick on it. Just like exactly. Like countdown time. <laughs> and and uh, then they say, okay, we have to investigate who this guy is. And they look online, and the first thing that shows up is you know TSA. They're making an effort. They're looking online who I am to kind of find reason to let me pass <laughs> with something. And the first thing that shows up is that now I have to explain two things. Here is why I'm carrying something that looks like a bomb, and also why I'm not really trying to rob a bank. And so so I think that uh, this is uh, the good side. But I think on the on the uh, flip side, or the, or the silver lining in that, is that I feel that uh, this was a story I told at the moth the first time I went to the moth. I kind of came, told the story, and started advancing in their kind of uh, hierarchy of uh, from the moth story slam to the right. moth grand slam. So I didn't know enough about storytelling at the time, and this forced me to uh, to be a storyteller. So people ask me since then to tell stories, and and, and, and I tell my students. And, and what I learned, I think, uh, is that communication is essential right now to any career you choose. As in, even as a scientist, it used to be that you had enough if you just sat in a little room with a little lamp and wrote equations and submitted a paper and this was it. But I think that right now we live in a world where you just you aren't just giving a, a, a talk, you also write a paper and you also have to have a TED talk that is very articulated and explains everything that you did in your life in 15 minutes. And you also have to be able to uh, speak to different audiences and simplify it or complicate it. And, and all of those things are the world we live in right now. So the skill of telling stories and being known as a storyteller is good for science. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming this position regardless. Can I tell you one more story? I, hey, I'm here. Uh, I, I, this is a story that, that uh, is in my mind right now. As I said, that I thought about that. Uh, last year, I was at Kellogg teaching the marketing class, teaching MBAs how to use neuroscience. At the cereal factory? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. Continue. Uh, <laughs> and, and one day, I'm, I'm told my class is canceled because uh, President Obama is going to visit Kellogg. So he came and my class was canceled. And all my students went and they allowed the faculty to uh, be there before, but I, of course, forgot to sign up on time. So I wasn't allowed in the room where everyone was meeting the president in my school. But there was a remedy. They allowed those of us who didn't get in to have an a evening before meeting with uh, David Axelrod, the senior advisor, yep. and with the actor who plays Josh Lyman in The West Wing. <laughs> okay. Uh, those, those are the two people. It's a good consolation prize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, so there's like a small meeting and we get that. And there was a discussion about politics and, and very interesting kind of evening. And then uh, the actor said something that uh, unfortunately really resonated with me up to today and kind of highlights what I said. He said uh, that in our day and age, you can be president pretty much no matter what you do, but one thing. So you can uh, sleep with your intern, go to war uh, for false reason. You can do whatever you want and you can still remain president, but there's one thing you cannot uh, be president and have, and that is be bad on camera. If you're not good on camera, you can't be president in the US anymore. 
And he said, this is my job. I'm, I'm an actor. I should be good on camera. Presidents aren't supposed to be that. But the reality is that this is the world we live in right now. You right. have to be, you have to not just be a good scientist who solves puzzles. You also have to uh, know how to tell a story. You have to have beautiful slides. You have to basically have a brand. And this is where I think marketing is more than just the trying to sell Captain Crunch in a store. It's also who you are and your identity and your brand are working with you anywhere. So now the story that people find when they look me up on Google has to tie into neuroscience research yeah. and my identity. And I think that I learned that slowly because I I always thought of myself as a scientist but not as a brand, but I realized that this is the case right now. You, you don't care as much about a like the institute the person is, you don't say he's a professor at Kellogg, he's a professor at NYU. You right now say, who is this guy and what can I find about him? And every professor has their website and a brand and no, and that's kind of the world we live in. And it took me a while to adjust, but now I feel that this is the long answer to yeah. the question, what, how I uh, include the fact that I'm going to always be known as a hacker right. with me being a professor. And it, But it's good because I think, you know, when, as you were talking, I was thinking about this idea of capacity, right? And what a musician would have to do to make it 20 years ago has vastly changed. They have to do so many different things, you know, thus the birth of the multi-hybrid, you know, person, right? The hybridization of humanity, if you will. Wow, that sounds good. You want to write that up for a paper? <laughs> but um, uh, as we wind down, I do want to touch on that idea of hybridization because you were at PopTech. We were yes. supposed to be there together. I couldn't make it. But um, uh, the, there was a theme at the event. Uh, and, and for those of you who don't, don't know, please Google PopTech. But it's a really cool gathering of geeks and smart people and entrepreneurs and different thinkers. But uh, but there was a theme of hi- being hybrid. Yes. And you had to give a like a last-minute talk on that um kind of talk about the theme and then where you went with it so um so i love pop tech uh, for many reasons and i basically say yes to everything they have in mind whatever they say give a talk uh, uh, train the fellows everything they say i always say yes to so they came to me the night before and they said uh, tomorrow we want you to give a talk for five minutes about something that has to do with hybrid and the conference was themed hybrid and pretty much every person who went on stage opened by explaining somehow what makes them a hybrid? So uh, one person, the, the uh, editor of Esquire magazine, spoke about how the past, all of the uh, issues of the past, influenced his choices uh, in the present. And a person spoke about being um, rich and poor and how uh, changing from being poor to being rich actually changed his mindset. And one woman spoke about uh, the changes between uh, 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 love and hate. And, and everyone kind of started with some kind of uh, opposites and explained how it informed their life. And before I gave my talk, I had about 10 minutes to prepare. And I said, okay, I should also open up by explaining how I am a hybrid. And everything was taken. There was already everything (laughs) I could think of was taken. The only thing that I saw wasn't taken was uh, uh, being dead and alive, which I didn't think that there's a lot uh, you can do with being dead and alive other than spoke about quantum physics and, you know, Schrodinger's cat and what does it mean to be in a state of... But I couldn't find... But then somehow, miraculously, it dawned on me and what came back was a story that I uh, remembered from uh, the days as a hacker. Now, now that I'm telling it in your show, now I'm going to be known for that. Every time, like, uh, <laughs> when I pass TSA, so if TSA... Right at the end, it's <laughs> like, yeah, the last part was great, but he's a hybrid guy. If TSA is now, if I'm right now stopped it by TSA, and they're trying to figure out who I am, this is just a, a story. I'm still, I'm really, am a professor of neuroscience. I'm teaching business school students. This is just a, an anecdote from the past. Please let me pass uh, with this little box in security. 
Okay, so now we cleared that. So, so the story was a story of, of a period of my life back in the days where I was working as a hacker where things started being strange. So uh, suddenly I get letters that my uh, SAT that I was supposed to take in a few weeks is canceled. I'm not going to be there. And I started getting letters from insurance companies offering me all kinds of things that were weird, that were unusual for me because I usually got like one letter by mail, you know, a month. So suddenly I get like 10 a day. And I couldn't put one one together at a time. And what happened eventually is I went to the uh, uh, bank and I tried to get cash from, you know, the cashier because it's the early 2000s when you still have to go inside the bank. Right. I go inside and the uh, person there says, sorry, I can't give you money. The system won't let me do that. And we try to investigate what, what could stop me because I knew that I have some money in my checking account. Bottom line, he says, it seems like you're dead. So the system says that you're dead and you died uh, two weeks ago or 10 days ago and we cannot give money to a dead person. And I say, this is ridiculous. Clearly, I'm alive. Like, this is not, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and they say, well, we don't know what's going on. And I start to investigate. And what actually happened to be the case, we learned quickly after, was that at the time, my team was working on trying to break into the equivalent of the social security service database. So there is, in Israel, this kind of system database that has everyone's records. And it has your first name, last name, age, um, gender, race, whatever you want is in the system. And this is kind of what determines who you are. We were tasked in trying to break into the system. One of my colleagues broke into the system. And then we normally have a video that we show to the company how we did that. And he wanted to show how we can actually change a record. He picked my record and he changed the flag that uh, indicates that you're alive. <laughs> One to zero, being dead. And then turns out that this system feeds into every system in the country banks, insurance companies, every right. other company. And no one ever came back to life other than uh, Elvis Presley, right, Paul right. McCartney, and, and, and Jesus. Tupac. <laughs> Tupac? <laughs> <laughs> so, those, so those are the four people that I knew came back to life, but so they didn't really have a, a, a code that uh, updates things. Actually, I, th I think they actually updated back to me being uh, alive, but the system just feeds one way. Like you don't, no one checks again after you died if you came back to life. So for all purposes, I was dead in every system in the country. And it took us a few days to find ways to change that. I think that what they did in the end is they had a judge uh, allow them uh, to create another entry in the database. And now there's actually two of us. There's the zombie me wow. floating around and there's the uh, living me in the Israeli... What time of day did you ask the judge to <laughs> make that change? 8 a.m. That's how that <laughs> like, first, like, hey, before you go in there, um, <laughs> I got one tiny favor. Uh I, I want to. I know I promised you I'd let you off the hook, but I want. I have one last question um, because you said Jesus, and we talked about dead and alive. And I was my horrible joke is I was that Jesus was the first zombie, but um, but uh, <laughs> it's true in some circles. However, it's a great comic book, though, right? It'd be a good comic book. Um, when you talk about this idea of choice and you know psychology in the brain and neuroscience, and um, there was an episode of Larry Wilmore show last night. Which with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Lentz, who's like a superstar, yeah. you know, Christian pastor. And it was just like, where does science and religion, you know, uh, where do they intersect or do they intersect? Um, how much of that choice is faith, you know, in a higher power uh, or not? Tough. That's a tough one. Uh, you're pushing me to my limits of knowledge <laughs> right now. Um, so here's what I can say. There's a uh, people who study happiness, uh, business people who study happiness. It became a, a good business. I, I mean, it's going to tie to to God. That's fine. Trust me. Uh, and they uh, try to see 
it started by economists, actually one of them won the Nobel Prize uh, in the 2002 for kind of looking into those questions. And the question was, uh, is making more money going to make you happy? Because people assume this is the case. And the answer is probably not. I mean, some some level from zero to 50,000, it actually makes you happy. But after that, it doesn't make anything. But they actually investigated what makes you happy. And they formulated a number of things that make you happy. And I can give you the list of the top five, uh, but I'll focus on number three. So number five is exercising. So this is not surprising. People who exercise actually are happier. Number four is volunteering. So people who do things for others actually get a reward in the form of happiness. Number three is being spiritual. Number two is being social and interacting with others. And number one is interesting because it's way above all the other and it's the most unexpected one. You can try to guess if you want what it is. Food? No. Oh, no. But uh, along the same lines, it's sleep. Oh. So of all the things, if you can choose to make $1 million or sleep well for the rest of your life, like wake up not tired, you should choose sleep. It's going to make you much happy. So this is, this is a study. And I was always baffled by number three. Like why is spirituality so high up and what about it makes us happy? And I think that it, the answer to me is that it ties to number two. Number two was being social and interactive. For the brain, things are more interesting in the world when we interact. Communication makes our brain work. It changes our brain the most. It makes us active and it, it's actually doing a lot of good things for us. I think the people that are uh, spiritual, not even religious, have someone with them all the time and interact with them. They go to sleep in bed and there's someone there to interact with. They spend a lot of time uh, kind of calming their brain down and letting voices who are more buried down come back to life. So, so in a way, they always do this thing. So it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. I happen to not be. But it, I think in a way, there's a benefit to that that I'm not going to have. Because if I don't believe in God, then I'm not going to have that in right. many ways. But if you believe in God, you actually have a friend with you all the time talking to you and interacting with you and, and making your brain active. And that, I think, is uh, beautiful because it makes your life more rich. And spirituality, and here I'm not separating between being religious or being spiritual. Sure. Anything that brings you this thing is good. And I think this is the one domain where neuroscience, uh, very kind of classic neuroscience, it's very mechanical and very spiritual world intersects because we know that it affects your brain positively. So that's, that's how I tie spirituality, God, happiness, and money. I just found your next 10 years. This is where yeah. you combine, combine those three things. Um, so the show is called Innovation Crush, as you've, as you've been informed. <laughs> um, what are some things that you've seen out in the world that you're personally crushing on? They can be in your world or something you've seen recently or experience you've had. I thought when we started that I'm going to have to answer that, and I spent a lot of time in my mind racing. <laughs> but I actually have the answer. So so I, I didn't know when we started. I didn't so know. it's not spontaneous. <laughs> no, I, I knew that. I knew that you, you got notes and everything. You're like the most yeah. prepared. You are an academic because nobody else has ever come in here this with like, just page one of like 20 that I have uh, prepared. Uh, I didn't do any of, any of the notes, by the way. Like none of those things that were said. So it's, it's actually good. What's the first, what's the first thing on there? What does it say? Uh, it's, just, I mean, the, just read it. I don't you have to explain it. <laughs> it, says, it says decide. It says how far before. It says consumer neuroscience. It says uh, uh, manipulation behavior. It says politics. It says AMC theater. It says YouTube. It says Hershey. It says weird, weird stuff. Uh, all of, all of, all of <laughs> our clients we worked with that cared about uh, then I thought maybe you're going to ask me about like how AMC theaters chooses how to edit the trailers. So how like, things like that. That's why I wrote it. I think we, I think we got the essence yeah. of it, right? Like We covered more than ever. <laughs> uh, by, and also, I speak so fast. I think we got three shows in the in I know. The, like, this is, I'm going to cut this up into four episodes. Even, but it's fast and it's still yeah. a lot of content. I'll slow it down. So what, what, what's the innovation? So, I, so I, I didn't know what I'm going to say, but now it dawned on me as soon as you asked me, I didn't know what it is. Uh, dreams. 
I think that the next, so uh, combining what I said about sleep, I think that the next domain that is uncharted territory that we're going to change the world with and businesses should focus on right now is uh, sleep. Not just because sleep uh, correlates highly with happiness. And if you make people sleep better, they actually are happier. We also know, and this is the, the, the flip side of the same thing, that uh, you sleep for a third of your life. Your consciousness goes to rest if you want when you're sleeping, but your brain still does things. And we can use that to change behavior. So there was a study that came out a few months ago that shows that you can take smokers who want to stop smoking but are un unable to. And during the moment in their sleep where the brain is, if you want, listening without waking up, without resisting, you can actually uh, spray the smell of nicotine into, your, into their nose and immediately after uh, uh, spray the smell of rotten eggs and basically make their brain create a pairing that says that smoking is not tasty. And then they wake up the morning after, they don't know what happened overnight, and they uh, uh, drop their amount of cigarettes that they consume by more than a half. Wow. So that's, that's now changing behavior for the good. You say, I want to be that. I don't know how to do that. We do things to you when you're asleep and you make you smoke less. We can uh, change racial biases. There's a study that came uh, just exactly a, f exactly a few, um, six months ago, I think. Uh, so it was uh, sometime around April. So you're going to sneak into Donald Trump's bedroom? Uh, you can sneak into Donald Trump's bedroom. Yeah, so, so it's, 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 am it's amazing how, how fast it works. So you take a person, not just overnight sleep, they bring people, and I think they went with all kinds of simple biases tests. So they try to see how, race, how racist you are, uh, black versus white, rich versus poor, women and, and income, right. women and paycheck. They try to kind of take all, all kinds of biases that people had. Even if, you know, even if you're a woman, you might have biases against uh, uh, equal wages when it comes, just because your society is in your brain. Yep. They had those women take a nap. So not like a long sleep, a nap of about two hours. During the nap, they target this window and it doesn't work in the entire night. It works only in a specific window. Uh, where your brain basically rethinks life in a way and they injected uh, using sounds positive thoughts, if you want, about uh, uh, equal uh, pay. And then they wake these women up and ask them to take the same test they took two hours ago. And there's already a change in their biases. So this this means that there's, there's something happens in our sleep that we can now tap into. And we can take people and not just, you know, make them less racist and uh, better people and stop them. But we can also maybe start thinking about ways to use that for education. So you can wake up and know Kung Fu. Uh, and, and can, so this to me is like a new domain. It's new. It's about a year old when we kind of start understanding what it's going into. And you can use it for anything. And businesses are now able to, you know, make you go to sleep and wake up wanting the it's water. It's like sleep therapy, like almost. It's, yeah, it's like sleep therapy plus the use of brands, right. plus uh, changing your mind, plus changing behavior. I mean, I, I, I think that this is uncharted territory. There's you no know, very handful of papers in science that uh, talk about that and even less uh, companies that know about the results and use them right now. And I think this is an uncharted territory that if I were an entrepreneur right now, I would try to tap into that and do something with that because I think that there's an enormous amount of things you can do in sleep and people are going to be willing to let you do that. They're going to say, I'm going to put the alarm clock with smells next to my bed so you can guarantee uh, that I have positive dreams. Right. And, and this is, to me, like exciting, and I'm happy no, that's, to that's that. awesome. I, it's funny. I, I think I got in a Twitter conversation with this brand called Casper. 
um, and they make mattresses. But the way they're going about like selling beds is pretty amazing, right? They're owning sleep in terms of you know they did a tour. They had a semi truck where they had four or five beds on a on the back of a semi, and it was like uh, the side was cut out, and you could go in and book a nap, right? Or they <laughs> they um, they rented an apartment in the Hollywood Hills, and you could go and book sleep time to go there and sleep, and, and then. You look at their website, it's content all like in the tangential to sleep from patterns to how you wake up to routines you should have in the morning. So, you know, that could be a good brand to sort of tackle it with. Um, I agree. I, th- I think this is this is uh, an uncharted territory yet. There aren't enough companies doing, doing something with that. And I think that the science shows more and more that it's a useful time of our life yep. that we can do something with. Or your mattress is free. <laughs> um, only a few people will get that joke. <laughs> this show is, this show goes internationally, and that's like a very local commercial. So it, like people will be like, "What is he doing?" Um, uh, so last but not least, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is um, a state of mind where various sides of you are able to come up with new ideas. Wow. Yeah. How does that feel? <laughs> this was innovation. I didn't know I have it in me to come up with like a Wikipedia first line entry. <laughs> See, there you go. Um, well, thank you. We'll have to get you back to do uh, to finish up your me search a little later. <laughs> but uh, no, anything, any final words? You don't have to have them. I'm just asking. I'm like enjoying you. it tremendously. And I think that you got me to say everything I want to say. <laughs> Great. Uh, everyone, this is. Oh, wait, before we do that, where can people find you? Because um, your website is a little like academia looking, but I think people will get it. So I, I think that somehow, so I, I, I have a website and I teach in, in uh, two different schools across the year. Very messy life, flying around, seeing patients in Los Angeles, seeing patients in New York, teaching uh, MBAs in Chicago. But the reality is that uh, I say yes to everything, unfortunately. So uh, when someone calls me and says, can you fly to Maine and give a talk for 10 minutes in an island in Camden? I say, sure, and I make it. So I think that... Uh, my website, moansurf.com, is where people find me. My email is there. They ask me to do something, and I always say yes. So the easiest person to find. All right. Um, and just so, just for the sake of your accent, are you ever going to take an accent reduction course, or are you just, just going to let it ride? This is me after. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I, this is, this, I graduated already. Uh, M-O-R-A-N-C-E-R-F. Yes. Uh, everyone is a C-O-M. Yes, yeah, but I think they got it. And there's, you don't actually spell out the word dot. It's actually the, yeah, the period the somewhere in the bottom of the keyboard. Um, thank you again. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time. 